I'm Ernst Sundel with another interesting, another Voice of Freedom program. I'm telling you, this is unusual. Normally I interview people, but this one is the story of a lady called Christine Miller. She's a school teacher in the United States, and she is also of German background. She came to the United States as a young woman and married quite a famous American doctor. So the reason why I'm saying she married a famous American doctor is because most people use the excuse that, oh, my husband's career or my own career, in this case as a school teacher, would be jeopardized if I spoke out. Well, this tape will show you that in the United States, where citizens have First Amendment protection, you can speak out and you can survive. There is, of course, controversy. There is vilification. There are nasty letters to the editor against you. And uh, your superiors look upon it askance if you do what Christine Miller did. And you can still survive it unscathed, as it turns out. Christine Miller had had enough. She had children that she raised, and she said they were getting one-sided education. The schools wherein she taught also had only one version of World War II history, especially when it came to the Holocaust. And so Christine Miller said, enough is enough. I want balance. We deserve balance. America has always been about you being able to speak your mind. And so she began to talk to her superiors. She began to go to see the librarians, ask that certain books be included for balance. And so this tape is the story, the presentation, that this lady, Christine Miller, American school teacher of German background, made. I thought it would be a good idea for our audience to see that because I have always hoped that many, many more people would emulate Christine Miller, would go and put programs, our programs, on public access, would write letters to the editor, would go to see their school boards, insist on their libraries, showing more balance and so on. So this is, in my eyes, the story of an ordinary but a heroic woman, Christine Miller. This is the first segment. There will be a segment number two. Good afternoon. I'm Carol McCart. I'm the dean at your university, Wisconsin Center, Marshville Wood County. And it is indeed a pleasure to welcome all of you this afternoon. And it's also um, my task to introduce Mrs. Christine Miller, who is going to speak to us today on her views of the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. I'm here to refute gas chambers and thereby the Holocaust. But it is a fact that Adolf Hitler wanted the Jews out of Germany. There were three reasons. Number one, the Balfour Declaration. In 1917, England promised international Jewry a homeland in Palestine. International Jewry, which until this time was rather pro-German, shifted sides and became pro-English. Adolf Hitler, therefore, looked upon the Jews as a potentially disloyal element, and he wanted them out of Germany. 
When he came to power in 1933, he enacted discriminatory laws against the Jews which disenfranchised them. Many Jews left. Number two, the communist threat. In 1917, the United States entered the war on the side of England and France and thereby decided the war. Germany entered a period of general misery, starvation, and internal turmoil. Now there were two ideologies coming to the forefront fighting for the soul of Germany. You had on one hand the National Socialist German Workers' Party, in short, the Nazis, and on the other hand, you had the communists. The Nazis were national in outlook, to the right, and promoted what nowadays goes under the name of family values. They outlawed abortion on demand and closed the gay bars. The communists were international in outlook. Let me stress it again. The communists were international in outlook. They were to the left, and they had a liberal agenda. They promoted abortion on demand and women's lib. Now, the leadership of that German Communist Party was in Jewish hand. And they looked to Russia for their cue. Russia just had undergone a revolution. Again, they looked to Russia for their cue. Let me name a few names. Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Liebknecht, Ernst Thälmann, and Kurt Eisner. Kurt Eisner, in 1918, ousted the Bavarian monarchy, the king and his family had to flee, and he established a short-lived communist republic in Bavaria. He called that communist republic the Rete Republic. Now let me explain to you the name Rete. Rete is the plural of Rat and means in English Counselor Wiseman. That is exactly what the word Soviet means. So, Rete Republic and Soviet Republic are the same word. Now, these two parties fought it out in the streets of Germany. Let me, in order to give you a feel for the atmosphere of that time, let me translate for you the Nazi anthem, which goes under the name Horst Wessel song. Hoist the flag, close the ranks, as our marches with quiet determined steps. Comrades which were shot by the Red Front, notice the word Red Front. Red Front stands for communists. So the Nazis which were shot by the communists and reactionaries march with us in spirit. Clears the street for the brown battalions, 
clears the street for the SR, millions already look towards the swastika full of hope. The day for freedom and bread is near. For the last time sounds the rally, we are already prepared for battle. Soon Hitler flags will fly over all the streets. The time of servitude will last not much longer. Servitude, he, re- he means the servitude to the Treaty of Versailles. Now, let me make a short side trip. In a number of Holocaust books, especially in the children's sections, uh, there are two books, I now I think three books, in the Marshfield Junior High School Library. In these books, the writers claim that the lines, when Jewish blood spurts from the knife, then things go twice as well, that these lines are in the Horst Wessel song. That is a lie. I just translated that song for you. These lines would never fit. I looked in all the other Nazi songs. I have here an old songbook, Sing, Kamerad, and this has been published in 1938. There is no song in this book which contains these lines. Now, the third reason why Adolf Hitler wanted the Jews out of Germany was the decadence of the Weimarer Republic. Adolf Hitler felt, rightly or wrongly, that the Jews were an element which promoted decadence and immorality. Now, when Bob Dole attacked Hollywood, that was vintage Adolf Hitler. In many people's mind, Hollywood is associated with Jews. In 1939, the war broke out and all the international borders were closed. Now, all the combatants Let me stress that all the combatants put segments of their population whom they did not trust into camps. The Americans put the Japanese into camps and some Germans. The English interned every German whom they found within their dominion. The Russians depopulated whole regions of their country and put Russians with German ancestry into camps. They mostly wound up in Siberia. The Germans put the Jews into camps. How the inmates fared in these camps did not so very much depend on the good or ill will of the country which put them there, but it depended on the resources of the country. If the country had plenty of food, the inmates could expect to be decently fed. Not enough food and the inmates starved. That was the case in Russia and that was the case in Germany, but only towards the end of the war. Now we come to 1945. 
With the beginning of 1945, the war was coming to a close. By this time, the English and Americans had gained air superiority and they used that air superiority to destroy, to incinerate German cities and in its, in its, in its inhabitants. They destroyed the infrastructure, especially the railroad system. Trucks and cars on the road were machine gunned from the air. At the same time, while this happened, the Russian front was coming closer and the Germans started to evacuate the inmates of the eastern camps like Auschwitz. These inmates were pushed into camps within the center of Germany like Bergen, Bresen, Buchenwald and Dachau. Now the number of inmates just doubled and tripled and quadrupled. At the very same time, when these camps could no longer be adequately supplied. The sanitation system broke down, epidemics broke out, and the inmates died like flies. The bodies could no longer be disposed of. Now, when the, when the English and Americans entered these camps, the site and sound and smell was horrible. Needlessly to say, they took plenty of pictures and newsreels and then sent them around the world. And thereby hangs the Holocaust tale. For the sake of simplicity, let me confine myself to six camps. Six camps. Bergen-Belsen, Buchenwald, and Dachau on one hand, and Auschwitz on Maidanek and Treblinka on the other hand. Bergen-Belsen, Buchenwald, and Dachau were camps within the center of Germany, going east to west. This region was conquered and occupied by the English and the Americans. Auschwitz, Majdanek and Treblinka were camps in what is now Polish territory. That area was conquered and occupied by the Russians. As I mentioned before, when the Russians entered these camps, they found abandoned camps because the inmates, as I just mentioned before, had been evacuated to the camps in the center of Germany. Now the lie that the gas chambers came out of Auschwitz. But the credibility to the lie came from the horrible conditions within the center of Germany, Bergen-Belsen, Buchenwald, and Dachau. Now to another very important point. There are two versions of the Holocaust. The first version was promoted right after the war until about the 60s, 70s. This version was faded out and the new version, which is still promoted, 
was blended in. In the first version, the Germans were supposed to have had gas chambers in camps within the center of Germany, Bergen-Belsen, Buchenwald, and Dachau. That lie was dropped. But the fact that the lie had been dropped was never publicized. Now, the second version, which is still promoted, lists these camps, Bergen-Belsen, Buchenwald, and Dachau as concentration camps in stark contrast to the death camps or the extermination camps, Auschwitz, Majdanek, and Treblinka. Now, why was the lie dropped for the camps within the center of Germany? Very simple. There were too many political prisoners in these camps who, for the sake of truth and fairness, put the resentment of being falsely imprisoned aside and said, no gas chambers at Buchenwald, no gas chambers at Dachau, no gas chambers at Bergen-Belsen. I want to especially mention one man, a Frenchman, Paul Racinier, who was imprisoned in Buchenwald and was horrified after the war when he heard his fellow inmates talk about gas chambers. Now, why do I refute gas chambers? I would call myself an expert on Holocaust literature. Whenever my husband goes to meetings, I go with him, he goes to his meeting, I go to the library and check out the Holocaust section and check out if there are any new books. Now, what I'm reading in these books was logistically and technically simply not possible. Number two, let's just talk about Auschwitz. There are a number of books on Auschwitz, all the versions differ. Just depending what version you read, okay. Now just, you, you read that uh, 900, uh, 1,000, 4,000 Jews were pushed into the gas chamber, and since the gas, the cyclone B, again depending what version you are reading, the cyclone B was dropped in, and when, uh, after half an hour, the Jews were all supposed to have been dead, and since the door was opened, and poof, the gas was gone. That is not possible. Gas, which just half an hour ago kills, killed such a multitude of people, doesn't suddenly disappear that fast. Now, Werber in his book, I Cannot Forget, says, that every 15 minutes a body was incinerated. That is not possible. Now, I'm not going to make it easy on you. I'm not going to tell you how long it takes to incinerate a body. Find out for yourself, call the crematorium at Warsaw. Now, Raoul Hilberg, however, has another method how the Germans disposed of the Jews. Let me read to you. 
is from the book The Destruction of the European Jews, Raoul Hilbert, page 251. Moll directed the digging of eight or nine pits more than 40 yards in length, eight yards wide, and six feet deep. On the bottom of the pits, the human fat was collected and poured back into the fire with buckets to hasten cremation. Now, that is not possible. This good professor confuses two processes. He confuses roasting with burning. In case there are a number of Professor Hilberg's among you, let me explain the difference to you. When you roast meat, you use the flame of, you use the heat of the meat, but not the fire of the meat. The heat of the meat will draw out the fat, and then you can use it. When you burn meat, you put the meat into the fire, but fat is highly combustible. Fat will burn first. Meat is 70% water. So what Professor Hilberg says simply could not have been done. The fat would never have collected at the bottom of the pit. Now I want to mention something else to you, what uh, Professor Hilberg writes. He repeats a rumor. He tells of our Jewish girls who were, whom, they, whom they injected with strychnine, Dilevano looked on, smoking a cigarette as did his friends, and they saw how these girls were dying. Immediately after that, the corpses were cut into small pieces, mixed with horse meat, and boiled into soap. Here you have the soap story again. Now that is silly. Anybody who knows how to make soap realizes that couldn't be done, you wouldn't get soap, you would get a stinking mess. Soap is made from mainly two ingredients, lye and fat, not meat. Number two, there is no documentary evidence. Now the documents, the German documents were brought to the United States, they were looked over, what they didn't find, they have not yet found an extermination order. The word gas camera, gas chamber, does not appear. So the whole Holocaust story rests on one thing alone. It rests on eyewitness reports. Now let me remind you of Demian Yuk. Demian Yuk was supposed to have been the butcher of Treblinka. He was extradited from the United States to Israel and he was put on trial in Israel. Now I remember watching TV. One of the eyewitnesses went up to Demianyuk, looked into his eyes and said, 
I can see it in his eyes. He is the butcher of Treblinka. Demjanuk was freed by Israel because he never was at Treblinka. Now we come to the Leuchter report. Leuchter, a designer uh, of execution equipment and in quote an expert on gas chambers, he checked out uh, gas chambers in the United States, went to Auschwitz and took stung samples from the supposed gas chambers. Before I go on, let me explain to you the properties of Cyclone B. Cyclone B, by the way, is the trade name of hydrocyanic acid. Now, hydrocyanic acid combines with masonry and forms a stable compound, ferroferric cyanide. This ferroferric cyanide produces blue staining. So anyhow, Leuchter went to Auschwitz, chipped out stone samples from the supposed gas chambers, and as a control, he chipped out stone samples from what is still officially designated as the lousing chambers. He brought the stone samples back to the United States. They were examined in a laboratory in Massachusetts, and what they found out there was, there, I show it to you just a second. This is the Leuchter report, if you want to read it, it is in the Marshfield Library. I, it took me some, it took some doing before she would accept it, but she finally accepted it. Now here, the yellow is the uh, amount of quantity of ferroferric cyanide in the officially uh, uh, designated delousing chamber. From here to here. Now down here, barely noticeable are the remnants of ferroferric cyanide in the chambers which you were told were gas chambers. As you can see, no comparison. These rooms which you were told were used as gas chambers could not have been used as gas chambers because there was no or such very small or very small quantities of hydro of ferric ferrocyanide. By the way, this Leuchter report was completely stonewalled in the American news media. In the German news media it was mentioned, but it was mentioned as a pseudo-scientific report. 